Uh, welcome to the Sports Science Dudes. I'm your host, Dr. Jose Antonio, with my co-host, Dr. Tony Ricci. If you're a first-time listener, hit the subscribe button and like the show. We're on YouTube, Rumble, uh, Spotify, and also Apple Podcasts. Our special guest today is Dr. Mike Ormsby. He is the professor and director of the Florida State University Institute of Sports Sciences and Medicine. Uh, he also did his postdoc. Uh, in fact, I was talking to Tony about this. Postdoc training and visiting professorship at Skidmore College up in upstate New York. Apparently, it's very pretty, according to Tony. One of the few parts of the state that are, yes. <laughs> it's lovely, that's for yeah. sure. Yeah, so, and, and you got your PhD in bioenergetics from East Carolina University. Just briefly, some of your research interests, because you have a wide variety. Um, I think you're probably most well-known for nighttime uh, your nighttime pre-sleep feeding strategies to optimize metabolism, recovery from exercise, body composition, et cetera, et cetera. You also do a lot of work in sports nutrition and dietary supplements. But this, you may have told me this a long time ago. I didn't realize this, but you were a former NCAA collegiate ice hockey player. I did not know that. That's pretty That's cool. Right. Very cool. I didn't know that either. What position, right? <laughs> Yeah, so I was like a strong forward. I usually played center or right wing, and uh, very cool. Yeah, I made it. I made it to play in college for three years, and and that was my life for a long time. Well, what's interesting about that is we have my wife. Uh, she's good friends, and we have a neighbor who's trying to become a professional hockey player. And hockey is completely different than how baseball, basketball, football, how you get into pros. He actually lived with a family up in Northeast, I think it was Northeast Connecticut, because I guess that's what you do for hockey. You go live with somebody where you play hockey all year or something. I was like, what? That's that's crazy. But hey, yeah. you know the hockey life. I, I don't know the hockey life. I used to know the hockey life. That was part of it. Yeah, I remember hosting, you know, uh, teams from overseas would come stay with you for a month to play in tournaments over and over. I grew up outside of Philadelphia, so uh, being in that place and playing all over New England and Canada was was part of the gig. Well, tell me this. How come – I assume you had dreams of going pro, right? I sure did. And what happened? Well, one day you realize that uh, you're not as good as you thought you were. <laughs> <laughs> I had a great career. I played uh, Division three ice hockey, so that was that was the, the cap for me. And then I coached for a long time, so I, I loved oh, very that. Very cool. Um, and around that time, I was figuring out I wasn't going to be – a pro athlete. So, and I fell into exercise science and started those classes and nutrition classes. And that sort of took over for me and said, if I can be close to greatness, that's going to be my angle at this point. You know, what's, what's interesting. It seems like all of us have, at one point or another were frustrated athletes and we decided, you know what, I think I'm going to study this stuff to figure out why the hell we're not up here. All these other guys are. What the hell? What do they have that we don't have? So it's yeah, it's amazing. The effort was there. It was just some people you'd go play and it was just and they made it look effortless. And I'm over here dying on the side, you know, and and these people are just so good. It's it was pretty uh, eye opening to go play at that level. And and, um, you know, you think D3, that's that's whatever. But you still have Division One players who don't want that life playing Division Three, And you see the skill level that it takes. And it's pretty incredible. Yeah. That's amazing. And also, not in, in addition to hockey, you've also done the Ironman triathlon twice. No. Half Ironman. Let's get it straight. I oh, don't half. need the 70. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. yeah. The half. The okay. 70.3. Yeah. I did the yeah. 70.3 twice. And, and I, I asked my friends who've done the full if I can count that as one full uh, Ironman. <laughs> they said, not a chance. <laughs> so, 
So the yeah. half, the half is uh, is what are the numbers? And thirteen on the run. Right. Yeah. So it's it's just like basically the half of every distance. So you end up swimming. One point one on the swim, or yeah. So you swim and then you bike your fifty six or whatever uh, it is. Yep. Uh, yeah, and then you end up doing your half marathon. So I've done several half marathons, but never without swimming and biking before it. So I don't know uh, how I would do anymore. <laughs> but then we had our children and my 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 emphasis switched and I decided not to train for six hours every day on the weekend, um, which was a purposeful choice, but get back into strength and power and, and just um, try to be fit for any occasion. Like mm-hmm. if I want to come down and see, I want to be able to paddle with you and not completely die or <laughs> I, I don't think I'd ever try to roll with Tony, but but maybe you could show me some things sometime. <laughs> I'm okay, Dad. That I know a little bit about. Like you, you, you work on my tank, and I'll work on that one. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. Well, tell us, uh, Mike. Tell us a little bit about. Um, you're well known for doing the initial pre-sleep feeding strategies, and um, you know, sort of from a pragmatic point of view, it's it's how do you convince people one to just hey, you got to eat a little bit before you go to bed. Whereas for a lot of people, like for me personally, if I eat something, I got to be up for a while. And the idea or thought of consuming, especially protein, <clears throat> because protein, let's face it, I'd rather eat sugar, a piece of apple pie than, you know, have a shake. Um, walk us through how you got to that point where you're like, you know what, let's look at the pre-sleep stuff. Yeah, um, it's kind of a good story, actually. I When I got my job at Florida State back in 2010, um, you know, I kept being told you need a, you need a pattern, you need a, you know, a stream of research that's consistent and you're in one lane and you're the expert in that space. And, you know, being a sports nutrition person at a big R1 university was a little bit intimidating because I didn't know which route I'd be able to go. And if I could even maintain a career doing the things I'd want to do. Um, and I decided to just go for it because I said, if, if this isn't what they want for me, I'll find that out quickly. And then it's not the right fit. So let's just go for it. So I started looking around. And at that time, Biggest Loser was kind of all over TV. Mm-hmm. And they were always saying, stop eating, stop eating, stop eating at certain cut points to lose weight. So it was like 6 p.m. or 7 p.m. It was these early time points. And I started looking at the literature, because as a former athlete and some friends who were bodybuilders, they ate all the time and were absolutely shredded. The best, most fit individuals, men and women were eating at night. Like they would have eggs or cottage cheese or a protein shake, or even go back to leftovers from dinner and just have it again. Um, and it just didn't match up. So started looking, there was very little out there feeding something that was specific. I'm not talking about huge meals or people with nighttime eating syndrome or workers who work overnight, you know, shift workers like that. There was some literature in that space, but nothing for sport or body composition or health. If it was purposeful eating, uh, particularly protein, which I was kind of always interested in at that period. And so right about the same time we started work out of Luke Van Loon's uh, lab began in that same space. So for almost 10 years, we were the only ones doing that kind of work, which was really cool. And he has some techniques, which are amazing. So he was doing all the muscle protein synthesis, all of the kind of hardcore techniques. And we were doing a little more of the applied work, a little more of the body composition change, metabolic change, and really, I don't know, for me, outcomes that people really care about and and can sink their teeth into, which got a lot of attention. So we got picked up by magazines and news outlets. And it just seems like 
it's a fun way to get your your research out there because other than you two who might read my article, maybe it's good. Does it make the media? And, yeah, and I read and them. Just, yeah. Well, you, okay. I got one. <laughs> I got one. Wait, um, let me, let me ask you a technical question that deals with you. You mentioned Luke Van Loon and some of the muscle protein synthetic uh, stuff he did, whereas you were more interested, we call it the applied stuff, but I actually, I call it the more important stuff because there seems to be, and I want your scientific and maybe just sort of a general opinion about the value of looking at these acute changes versus what I consider much more important. Well, does it help performance? One, does it improve body composition? Two, and three, is there some other metric that says this is better? Because to me, I think a lot of people get lost in the muscle protein, the acute muscle protein synthetic data. And I don't know how applicable it really is. What do you think of, of that? Yeah, I mean, there's so many people who make a point that because MPS went up, because of anything that that's what you need to do. Um, and it really doesn't mean much if you're not putting muscle on over time or you're not in positive energy balance or whatever you're looking at. So I agree, like that stuff leads to some really cool uh, findings. There's some wonderful researchers who use these isotopic tracers to figure these really cool details out. But if you don't do it for long enough, all you're doing is saying, it's interesting, a couple of key enzymes are changing or maybe some proteins are being upregulated but someone once told me that, you know, upregulated proteins don't win gold medals. <laughs> that is true. There are no, there are no gold medals for, hey, I had the highest MPS, damn it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So over time, it's really important to see what happens. And so our work started in this nighttime feeding space. And again, we do a lot, but this is just kind of what we're most known for. Um, we started in that space looking at some acute things like, can you eat before bed? One, what does it do to your sleep? What does it do to your resting metabolic rate? These are tools I had in the lab. So it was very simple to design some of these. And so when I had these, uh, the availability of that, it was like, okay, I've got friends who sell these products. Let me see if we can go after getting products. And then it went to, okay, let me go bigger. Let me see if I can get grants from external organizations. And the work just kept getting picked up. Um, and it became the stream of, of research where we tried different populations. We tried men, we tried women, we tried young, we tried old. Uh, and believe it or not, we're still working in this space because new questions keep coming up, even though we're, I'm going on my 14th year at FSU. And we've been doing at least a study a year, at least on this stuff uh, over that period of time. Wow, that's amazing that you've, you've kept that one avenue. And here's, and I'm sure you run into this because I run into this as well, that Despite the fact that you do all this other research, people always ask you about pre-sleep protein. <laughs> That's true. Actually, <laughs> I stopped speaking at several conferences for a little while because I was saying the same thing over and over. And I was like, How's, no one's going to come anymore. I need to wait and get some more data to go back and do this again. <laughs> well, let me ask you this. So in terms of pre-sleep feeding, let's talk about casein versus whey versus plant-based proteins and whatever assessments you do that that matter. Uh, talk about those three proteins and how they might impact what happens the next day. Okay. Uh, well, we'll do like the Tarantino thing on this. It doesn't matter. So that's it. Now let's go back and figure out how that happened. Okay. Um, so. No, that's good. Hey, sometimes the punchline is more important. So yeah. Yeah, that's the punchline, but it didn't start that way. And it took a long time to figure out. We started giving people carbohydrate as the comparator or a non 
nutritive placebo. And that was kind of hard to do at first because you had to decide, do I need another group? And that's a lot more expense to do these things. But we'd add carbohydrate or nothing as the comparison or both. And then we usually did whey because we had access to it. And then we started adding casein um, because casein, you know, is, is kind of known for its kinetics. It's the slow release protein everybody talks about. So it kind of made sense at night where you might want several hours, seven, eight hours of time for maybe this drip of protein, amino acids into your bloodstream. So that was the theory behind it. But I remember talking to Luke because Luke Van Loon, we had a ACSM presentation together years ago where we highlighted all this stuff, probably around 2013, 2014. And I said, are you seeing a difference with whey or casein? Like, what are you seeing? Because I'm not seeing much of a difference. And we started hypothesizing just sitting there in some chairs, like, hey, maybe it's um, because you're laying supine, or maybe the acidity of your stomach is just slightly different at night that it doesn't really matter as much in the evening. And so our data for several years were just showing that protein, whether it was casein or whey, had a small advantage for things like um, perhaps body weight or fat loss over four or six weeks in people who were already obese. So they they had some wiggle room to go. Um, metabolic rate seemed to be slightly better if you ate anything, carbohydrate, whey, or casein instead of a placebo. So eating anything seemed to upregulate your resting metabolic rate through the night and into the next morning. Um, we started thinking about the, the plant-based proteins kind of around the time that this Game Changers Netflix thing came out and we had access to uh, a combination uh, protein of rice and pea. And so we wanted to make sure we had it as best we could lined up with its amino acid profile to compare against whey protein isolate as well as uh, some other things we were looking at. That study where we started using plant-based proteins was in middle-aged men. So like we all could do it guys, we'd get in here and we would do some, uh, it was 150 eccentric only exercise, uh, um, leg extensions and flexions. So it was a protocol that was published, but unfortunately it, we ended up, uh, having two participants in the hospital with rhabdo that didn't turn out well. So the study got canceled and we had, Wait, Mike, um, were these trained individuals or untrained or moderately trained? Yeah, they were trained. And these two individuals were probably the most trained of everybody that we had. They were highly fit. I mean, ultra runners, we're talking wow. military people. It was uh, surprising to say okay. the least. So okay. it was 150 so, eccentric reps. Again? It was 100. Yeah. 150 eccentric reps with each leg and okay. in our piloting of it, people were sore, but it wasn't a problem. Um, and so we were very surprised. And so we did the right thing. We had to stop the protocol and we, we shut it down, but we had um, six people roughly per group at the end of that. So we wish we had more like eight or nine, but we were still powered appropriately for some of our outcomes. Um, and in that study, nobody recovered well. So maybe the age was something that was going on. Nobody came back to normal in a time frame you might see for, for like creatine kinase or enzymes you might see spilling out because of muscle damage. Um, and the groups that recovered, uh, everyone recovered close to baseline, but nobody made it there. And it did not matter if you had the plant-based protein or the whey protein isolate or the casein um, in this particular study. And we controlled everything. We did dietary, was fed to them for five days straight. We did 72 hours follow-up on these blood and performance markers. And we just didn't see 
anything uh, after that period of time. Could that be related to total protein intake over the course of the day versus, uh, you know, just giving them that one feeding pre-sleep? I mean, because they've already been feeding all day is, you know, I guess unless they were hypocaloric, would it have mattered more? Uh, and, and I mentioned the hypocaloric part because Tony works with fighters who there are times in their training where they have to just eat a lot less and recovery becomes an issue. Yeah. You know, we've thought about all that stuff in the design. Like, do we do hypocaloric? Do we do normal? Do we, do we change protein to keep it low on purpose, but that's not how they were normally eating. So yes, absolutely. That could be related to the total protein intake over the day. And that's probably the biggest knock on, on pre-sleep feeding is, uh, couldn't you just eat that some other time of day and it'd be fine. You know, I know you've done one of these studies, Joey, there's, there's a lot of data now. And actually the last three or four papers I've published have shown no difference if you have it at a different time of day. So what, what I've shifted my mindset for this and my recommendation, I guess it used to be more fully like do it. And now it's like, get your total protein intake for the day. And if that nighttime feeding gives you a little opportunity to get to your number that you're looking for, it's a great opportunity. So it's, you just don't have to worry about it and it won't make you fat. We've done so much work. Now we, we started putting a, microdialysis probes, <laughs> excuse me, um, into their uh, belly fat. And when we did that, we could then measure overnight lipolysis. <clears throat> excuse me. Joking. I get a drink. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, because one of your papers, you were looking at uh, uh, lipolysis, which, uh, which, as you know, a lot of people who are outside of science or even within science will misconstrue that as loss of fat mass. Um, right. so, so tell us about that, that work you did. Yeah. So again, we always have to clarify lipolysis versus oxidation and ultimately a change in body composition. So um, basically we were being criticized because we didn't know what was going on while they were sleeping. And we, we started measuring things when they came back in the morning. And so we said it was a skill that I had from grad school. We put these microdialysis probes, which is a teeny little semi-permeable membrane you can put we were putting it into the belly fat. You can also put it in muscle, which is cool. Um, but we were putting it in belly fat. You perfuse a saline solution through the probe. And what you get out of the probe is that that same saline solution plus whatever's coming out of your cells. So that gets into the interstitial space. And we measure glycerol as an indicator of lipolysis because glycerol can't be taken back up by the adipose cell um, without the proper enzymes there. So, uh, we don't do free fatty acids. We do glycerol as the indicator of lipolysis. And what we thought was, okay, if it's going to be a problem, we would probably see some change in the glycerol that's coming out all night long. So eight hours of collection. And we see no difference. We've done that in obese men, obese women. We've done in fit women and fit men. And we just do not see any change in lipolysis. Now that's acute again, just like MPS. Um, but the long, the longer term studies we've done have shown actually a benefit to fat, uh, the, the direction of fat change, not a statistically significant deal, but the direction of fat change would be one we would all choose um, by consuming this protein before bed. Um, Is, you know, oh, you Mike, said, can I just, sorry to yeah. interrupt it, just a standard, can you give us an estimate on the, the bolus, how much protein was being taken in when, when you did that approximately? Yeah, we started with 25 grams in our first studies. It moved to 30, it moved to 35. And now 
because of all the work that Luke's group has done and Jorn Trommelin have done with uh, their work and with the muscle side of it, they're recommending 40 grams uh, to be given, but their latest paper went even higher at 45 grams. And so this keeps going up and up, but 40 grams is basically what we recommend because there's such a long period of time between consuming it and trying to have it work for you. Whereas normal studies would give you less, but they're measuring MPS for two hours. This is, you know, eight hours later, you're trying to see a difference and they do, they still see it upregulated with that 40 gram dose. So we haven't fed that much until our very recent studies, uh, but that's really the, the, the gist of it. And athletes don't do it. So when COVID hit, we decided to uh, shift gears because we couldn't do research in the lab. And so we did got a grant from the Whoop company. They make those tracker mm-hmm. watches. And we put them on 500 female athletes all over the country at four different universities. So it was us, Chapel Hill, South Dakota State, and University of Nebraska. And so with those data, we were able to see the uh, what those athletes were consuming before bed because whoop sends like a push to their phone and it asks them what they were eating well from our data which was not great in terms of like compliance but when when we saw it these women were only having seven grams of protein before bed we looked again at the literature there's a huge dutch study that exists that showed that their studies in men and women only eight grams was consumed before bed compared to the 40 that is generally recommended And so right now we're following up on that to do a study this fall where we're going to feed our athletes uh, for several days in a row, specifically higher protein doses. What what food is seven grams of protein? (laughs) (laughs) It was all over the place. So that was just on average. It was like it, it was whatever they were regular eating. We didn't intervene. We just looked at the data after the fact. So, you know, it could be whatever they had had. It could be candy bars that had something (laughs) in it. It could be pieces of this and that. But, you know, of 500 athletes, we ended up with usable data from, I don't know, maybe 25 people. Well, I hope they were at some point getting more than seven grams for every other meal. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. So, so this, because it was all retrospective, there are limitations all over the place, but it did give us some insight. Uh, We're doing a follow-up with, um, uh, some other colleagues for just basically characterizing oral contraceptive use and um, percentages that people are using and not using in the U.S. because there's not great U.S. data in athletes. So it was a cool data set. But for the pre-sleep feeding part, it just showed us that either there's not a lot of education around that or they're just under consuming. However, we don't know what they ate through the day. So they could have been hitting their targets earlier in the day. We just don't know. So in reference to whey, uh, just in summari- uh, summarizing it, whey, casein, or plant-based protein, doesn't matter what you consume before you go to bed, even though theoretically I would have thought casein might be better, but hey, that's why you do the research. Casein's not better. Yeah. So just just probably two weeks ago, uh, it was Jorn Trommelin and Luke Van Loon's group put that paper out and they, they directly compared those and the kinetics. And it's like, once they did area under the curve, it was the same. So. The, the profile looked how you think it would, but because of that, they think it just washed out those effects, but they did see uh, uh, no change. They didn't see anything. So no change between those two and you can use either one. I, can I ask one question pertaining to this too, Mike? So yeah. um, by the way, I mean, for years too, when I was sport nutrition class, when I was at LIU, which was a 
prerequisite for the um, CISN, uh, I would go over my your research with my students all the time. And it's favorable too, right? I mean, even for general population, hey, here's some good news. You can eat some protein at night if you're really hungry and probably not have any negative implications. The one thing I, I'm wondering uh, is, so we have that protein, let's say we take a 40 grams and, and the thermic effect is relatively high, right? With the protein digestion. Do we know if there are neg any negative implications on sleep because of that? As So we might increase, right, um, core temperature a little bit due to that digestive cost, and that might run contrary to what we need to do for sleep. Is that correct, or am I speculating? Yeah, very good question, and, and it's really a hot topic right now as the, the whole sleep literature base is just right. exploding right now. Um, so I saw major organizations on social media saying, do not eat before right. bed. Uh, whoop put that out and we're doing the studies with it and and we didn't even show that so uh and i also saw it from other places and and i comment on it because i'm like we don't know that that's you can't just say that broadly what that applies to tony is a large mixed meal okay. if you have a big meal that's mixed macronutrient before bed there are sleep disruptions got it all right or if you know you're going to get gastric reflux don't eat Right, right. All right. So the other time I had did a talk and a dentist got on and said, what's it do to your teeth having that in there? I'm like, oh, well, they brush your teeth. I don't <laughs> know. So, <laughs> but the sleep question is there. And so right now we're starting uh, these series of studies where we're going to look at caloric threshold because there are also data that show in athletes that uh, higher protein levels before bed actually improve sleep, reduce sleep latency, like the time to fall asleep. Okay. And also Great. reduce weight episodes. And that ex that's from uh, some Australian research that came out fairly recently. Then there's a big meta-analysis that showed high or low glycemic carbohydrates or high protein helped sleep. Hmm. So maybe it's a caloric cutoff. I don't know right. if it's, you know, you're talking 40 grams of protein. You're not, that's not a huge calorie load. Um, and so what we designed was a great study. We need to get it funded still, but it was an ice cream study. And we were going into calorie cool. loads, milkshakes. So you couldn't tell how much was in there and just do like 200, 400 or 600 calories before bed and see what that did to sleep with polysonography and comparing to the whoop band. Really cool design, but um, really? yeah, funding fell through at the last second. So what we're moving to is a little more traditional design, but our full outcomes are going to be sleep and not performance and not metabolism. Um, and that study hasn't been well done yet. So we're hopeful yeah, to get in front of that with elite female athletes this fall. Yeah. And that's fascinating I, I, to know that it's the presence of all three macros that might propose a greater uh, effect yeah. on the negative it implication be, than just the protein. Yeah, I think it is. It could be the calorie load, though, yeah. Tony. It, yeah, it could be sense. the thing driving it. And I'm just not sure. But I know, Joe, you opened up saying you wouldn't, wouldn't want to eat before bed. And I'll tell you. If you know also that drinking a big glass of something is going to make you wake up to urinate, maybe you don't want that approach. So it's going to be individualized. You know, can you handle it? Does it make you wake up? But almost every single study to date, I'll tell you every single study to date that's feeding these like specific doses to people for hypertrophy or body comp or metab that have done any sleep tracking at all have shown no, either no difference or benefit. Great. So that's pretty neat. Even looking back when we first started, again, we got sleep questions. Our first study, we didn't measure it. Second study, we gave them a survey. 
how'd you sleep last night? And, and they said no different, but then now we're starting to track it and figure out like what's actually happening. Well, hey, staying on the uh, pre-sleep feeding thing, you did uh, some interesting work on uh, pre-sleep low GI index modified starch. I love when you focus on performance issues. You looked at male and female endurance athletes. Tell us the etiology of how you came up with the question, why you think it was important, because I'm always around endurance athletes. I mean, my wife is a national class cyclist. And when you listen to conversations among these individuals, no one ever talks about eating anything before they go to bed to improve performance the next day. I, that's a conversation I've never heard. Yeah. So, so why, how did this come about? So the first time I thought about this, it was three 30 in the morning and I was waking up for my first half Ironman. I said, this is stupid. Why am I waking up to, to eat at this time? You know, and I knew I was going to have little snacks later on, but I woke up and had like my whole thing that I had planned out textbook kind of material. Um, and I said, well, maybe there's another way. And so we were giving all these protein things. And I thought, well, we've done work with modified starches before. We had already done two papers with these starches that are uh, engineered to be very slow digesting. And they came about, I love it when like the medical crosses over to athletes. So these, this particular product started from a medical issue for people who had something called glycogen storage disease. Yeah. Ah, and okay. so they can't store any glycogen. So they took this product that had a drip of of glucose into their bloodstream so they could do things a uh, very useful tool for that condition but athletes saw it just as you'd expect and say "Ooh, drip of glucose and doesn't do much to insulin let me check that out and so there were a couple of studies that came out before us and then we started into more real athlete testing and comparing it to products that are on the market already the you know the ready to go um, carbohydrate style drinks. And we found like no difference if you gave a low dose of it, but if you gave a high dose of this, like super starch, you started getting GI upset. And Wait, we, what, what is low and what, what is high defined? So those we were two. going off of like current recommendations of 60 grams per hour. And that's what yes. you would give of Gatorade or yeah. whatever. And the uh, company who makes it recommends a lower dose, which is, um, they say, because it lasts longer and you're not going to get this GI ups. And so we gave 30 grams and another group, we gave 60 grams of the super starch. And so we had all three conditions in there uh, and a placebo. So when we compared 60 grams of Gatorade to 30 grams of UCAN super starch, uh, Gatorade won in the performance outcome but uh, you can had a benefit to not having as much GI upset. When we gave 60 grams of each, there was no difference there um, in performance, but the group who had the UCAN had a higher GI upset. Um, mm. And they were had very, they were complaining, uh, you, I mean, with these visual analog scales and then just what they were saying um, from having it. Now, limitation there is they didn't normally consume that product. So maybe if they consumed it for a couple of weeks before we tested it, that might have been a benefit. However, that you get into trouble with blinding at that point because now you know what tastes. So you, you it's hard to win. Um, anyway, we so the slow digesting starch came into play, and I thought if we take it before bed, is it slow enough that you can avoid having to wake up at three in the morning for a runner or a cyclist? who's going to do a, a race that would require eating beforehand, you know, so something longer than a 5k, maybe even longer than a 10k. 
And so we had a, a student come down to an internship with me. Uh, we designed the study over the summer. We uh, packed her up with all the products. She went back to her home university and ran that for her uh, undergraduate thesis at her at her university, wow, which was cool. really cool. Yeah. Um, and so we had a professor there link up with us. We gave him the whole design, all the stuff, and it, and it worked out really well. But yeah, they they took it before bed. We thought maybe the next morning we'll still have an effect with glucose to help run faster. And we did some testing with um, uh, 55, 65, 75% of VO2 max to see what fuel was being used before we did a 5K time trial. Um, interestingly, like the fuel selection was different. So you started using a lot of carbohydrate, which was good, but it didn't translate into a performance benefit in, a, in our study. So we don't know if we didn't give enough. We gave 75 grams of it before bed. Um, so we left saying, it's another choice. You can use it if you want to. Uh, years ago, I gave a very quick talk at ISSN on uh, super starches. And I had several dietitians come up to me afterwards and they thought I was lying to them. And I was like, I don't, I don't care what the product does. I'm just showing you the data from what we collected. And, and so there's a big gathering, I think like a bunch of people who loved uh, this product. And I think it works in some scenarios. I think it would be most useful for people who don't get to eat much in their competition, maybe long distance swimming or something along those lines. Uh, there might be a place for it. Or if you just like the taste of it, it probably won't hurt you if you get your belly used to it. Uh, it just wasn't any better. And okay. it just provides another tool in your toolkit. Hel helpful to know because where we have considered it a lot, Mike, is in, in the uh, Muslim athlete that during Ramadan can't eat much all day long. So would, yeah. this, would this have some value if we were to take it at night and then have the, you know, slow kinetics and have that carbohydrate availability perhaps for maybe just the morning session at, at, at best. But that's where we have considered it. And good to know, though, what you're seeing with it. Yeah, that's a fantastic use. That's probably one of the ones where I'd say it's probably a great use at that particular right. point. Yeah. So then, you know, the whole carbohydrate world's uh, probably for a different guest you might have, but man, the, the super starches and then modifying to be fast digesting is another area. We wrote a review on these papers and now they have, you know, different types that are the Martin, like slow release gels and stuff. It's pretty crazy what they're making right now. What's, what's the data show if you were to just to take these slow release carbs versus, you know, table sugar, Gatorade, Powerade, uh, pre-race, uh, let's say you take it, I don't know, 30 to 60 minutes before race. Is there a difference in a performance benefit versus a non-caloric placebo? Yeah, I think it depends on how long the race is. So if it's short enough, you can use your own stored glycogen. I think there's going to be no difference at all. Where it has shown a benefit was a scenario where they gave it early, did a long exhausting protocol waited an hour in the lab and then did um, an exercise bout. So it was very far after ingestion. So in that's a hard scenario to replicate. Like normally you'll have food you can eat. And so it, you wouldn't need to do that. Um, but in that, if you're going to wait a very long time, maybe it's helpful. Right. I will say perhaps even for diabetics or diabetic athletes, because insulin did not rise at all. Glucose was very steady with it compared to um, the normal, you know, sports drinks. So uh, it definitely has a profile where it does not raise insulin or glucose very much. 
I know I've always had strange looks. Uh, one of my favorite drinks before a race is actually a regular Coke. Um, and people are like, oh my God, you're drinking Coke. It's, well, it's just, it's sugar, water, and caffeine. I mean, it's, there's nothing special about Coca-Cola, but I guess sodas have such a bad rap that people don't realize you could use it in the same way you use any of these carbohydrates, you know, before a race. Yeah, absolutely. I, I, I remember seeing athletes all the night before opening two liter bottles of Coke so they could drink flat Coke. So they didn't have any of the fizzy um, that might mess with them the next day. And then they'd fill their bottles with some of that the next day too. That's, that's interesting. Let's uh, before the ISSN conference, we all know Roger Harris. He's uh, he's one of the pioneers in our field. And he, 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 he told me, he goes, you got to promise that if you learn anything about college, it, you got to forward it to him because apparently he's into collagen now. So okay. you've done some work on collagen peptides. And um, I'm curious as to one, if it affects, you know, pain, joint pain too, how it is as a protein, because people are like, hey, collagen, protein, proteins, protein. Um, yeah. So those two issues, collagen as just a protein source as food versus, you know, its effect on pain or joint function or joint support. Yeah. So another hot topic, uh, collagen. We got into collagen about five years ago. Um, I was trying to predict the next thing that was going to be a good topic to go after. We decided to choose collagen and it was a cool ride. So what we ended up doing in our hands was testing. We're going to do a dose testing. I wanted to see if 10 or 20 was a better dose because that was what was typically given. And I wanted to, I guess, because I'm getting older, I wanted to use uh, athletes. Mike, that have- Mike, you're 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 a baby compared to Tony. <laughs> thanks, guys. Thanks. I'm just looking in the mirror of my future here, my hair and everything. Here we go. <laughs> hey, no, no, uh, uh, Mike, that's from your kids. That's why you're getting white hair. That's <laughs> yeah, true. True. So, uh, so we did a, a nine month study. So we chose middle aged, active individuals, and they had to. We called them lifelong active individuals because they had to be at least 15 years of activity um, throughout their life. But many of them were much longer than that. But we had a wide range of people. So some just walked a lot and some were high level uh, masters athletes in different sports. So big range of individuals. And so we did zero, three, six, nine months of supplementation of zero, 10 or 20 grams per day. Longest collagen study I've ever seen. I said, goodness, if it's going to work, it's going to be, this is the study where we're going to see something. You okay. had to have pain. Let, to get I'm in sorry to interrupt you real quick, Mike, but I don't think people realize how inordinately difficult it is to do these kinds of long-term studies. They are, in fact, I try to talk students out of it. It's like, you want to do a study that lasts eight weeks? Or, are you sure? Yeah. <laughs> and you're doing one that lasted, it was nine months, right? Yeah, yeah nine months. Those are crazy hard to do. So well, I'm sure it just, when it was proposed, it's like, okay, well, well, let's try yeah, it. Yeah. So nine months took four years. That's that, that's wow. how that works. Because yeah. you don't start everybody at, at the same time. Right. So it took forever. And this, all the credit goes to one of my old uh, master's students who's now, or one of my old PhD students, who's now doing her postdoc with Arnie Ferrando, oh, yes. uh, Dr. Shaloa Kievkowski. And she's fabulous. You should probably have her on for your own collagen show, a whole collagen show. She's really good at this stuff. Um, but and it was her dissertation was was this work. Anyway, we we looked at zero, uh, three, six, and nine months of supplementation, all kinds of outcomes. But we were primarily interested in joint pain. Like it was it was you take this product, you come back in, you check with us. We had 
food logs, all kinds of questionnaires, validated questionnaires for knee pain and everything. Um, and at the end of all that, we found basically two outcomes I think are cool, at least for the general public. One of them was that 10 grams seemed to be the most efficacious dose mm. over 20. Also, the only people who had a benefit exercised the most. So oh. if we dichotomized our group, only the people, and I'm, maybe there were a few others, but in general, mostly the people who exercised more than 180 minutes per week, which is not a lot, they had better outcomes in terms of joint pain than people who exercise less than 180 minutes per week. So it seems like you have to be using, you have to be active and you have to take, and the dose for us was 10 grams. And so people say, I've said that before, they say, well, so is is it the thing? Are you going to recommend everybody to take it? I don't think I'm there yet. I think it's a cool study. I think it's a long duration study. I think it shows some possible benefit for this population. Um, I think we need more data. We're trying to figure out mechanisms because it's all over the place with how this stuff works. And that's what Shalo is working on now. In fact, we just are working on a second grant, which will be a collaboration with my group and uh, University of Arkansas Medical School to look at collagen use through uh, ACL reconstruction. So if that um, carries on, that'll be really cool to see if it helps with coming back to play, return to play uh, after that. So neat, but it seems like 10 grams, take it for a long time to have it work and you need to be active if it's going to be of any type of benefit. Why would, why would 10 grams work and 20 grams not work or work less? I'm trying to figure that out. Uh, but consistently we saw 10 grams being, uh, 20 still worked in some outcomes, but 10 just seemed to be better across the board. So it's not that it won't work, but in our hands, the people who had 10 seem to do better than the others. And maybe there's a dose response or we turn off some receptor. I don't really know. We didn't do any of that work in this study, but we are looking at the uh, different proteins that turn on or off for collagen turnover. And that's our next paper we're working on now, one that I hope that will get out this fall at some point. Tony, do you have fighters on any of these joint supplements or collagen? Or I mean, because Talk about a group that trains a hell of a lot more. Well, yeah, I mean, that's a consideration (laughs) after hearing what what Mike Mike is discussing now. Um, You know, we've made efforts, right? I mean, throughout the years, and I've I've tailed back on fighters I work with, but we were much more centered on glucosamine chondroitin and the fish oils. And at at that time, those were, you know, better understood to potentially mitigate the pain or inflammation that's associated with the joint. Uh, it's becoming more popular now, the collagen uh, proteins for that reason. Um, I haven't personally tried them, but I think I might because as an old man who's still doing very stupid things, I might be able to use that 10 grams. Yeah, yeah, yeah. it's it's uh, it's one of those things. I, I would give it a try, but I'm not gonna hang my hat on it just yet that it's gonna work for everybody. But we that's what we found. Uh, some of those papers will be coming out soon, hopefully. Uh, published in in the literature, actually ones with JSSN, which will which will hopefully be turned around here uh, pretty soon for a second review. So we're we're hopeful on that. the The other thing is collagen, though, is being bashed all over the place because when you compare it to something like whey for muscle growth, it's not the choice that right. like that shouldn't be compared. Uh, you should probably have your dose of whey and your dose of collagen, right, for separate reasons. But then people say, well, how do the amino acids know where to go? Like how is it targeted to the joint versus these other places? We don't know the answer. You don't know, right? 
the collagen mechanist people will say that it's these cyclic hydroxyproline proline molecules that are the ones yeah. that are doing all that the magic i don't know exactly how it's working yet we've got plenty more to do in that space um but if you're talking hair and nails, seems like collagen has a lot of literature on it. If you're talking about pain in the joints, there's a growing body of literature. If you're talking about body composition, muscle growth, collagen isn't the protein you want to be using. Mike, do you use any supplements for your joints since you're, you know, up there in age? You know, you're getting up there a little bit. Yeah, uh, my joints are still okay, luckily. So the only one I've taken is collagen. And, uh, you know, that was after, after these studies, I decided to, to try it. So, you know, that's just something in part of the daily routine. And again, I'm not sure if it's working or not. So at 10 grams, Mike, that's right. Yeah. And the dose on almost every bottle is 20. So I just cut it in half. Okay. Bottle lasts twice as long. Yeah. Yeah. I don't take collagen. I've been taking glucosamine for, I don't even know how many years now. I mean, I don't know if it helps, but I don't know. I mean, it's not like I have a twin brother as my controls. <laughs> so I'm, I'm hoping it helps. So tell us, uh, we have only a few minutes left, Mike. Uh, since you do a lot of work in sports nutrition and supplements, I'm sure people are always asking, hey, Mike, what do you take uh, You know, for yourself? Because you've moved a little bit away from the hardcore endurance training, maybe, you know, because, well, first of all, it takes a lot of time. Um, focusing more on resistance training, what do you take in terms of your supplement regimen? Yeah, so my routine is is creatine and a multivitamin that I take on the daily, and then with the collagen, I'm having and having a lot of access to it is helpful as well. So you know, makes it easy. Those are the three that are standard. The only other things I'll pepper in sometimes would be uh, magnesium, sometimes a, a B vitamin on occasion. But I really, really try to eat really well with everything I possibly can to cover my, my bases on almost everything else. Um, and protein supplementation, obviously I, so I take protein supplements, creatine, and then I have coffee. Actually, I used to take like pre-workouts and stuff, but that didn't do me very well. Never worked right. So I just have coffee. That's it. Oh yeah. I'm a, I'm a coffee, uh, coffee fanatic. What's your dose of creatine, by the way? Three to five grams. You know what's interesting? Remember, uh, uh, Tony, when we had uh, Scott Forbes and Darren Kandow on and they said, you know what? That's just not enough. (laughs) Yeah. I had dinner with Darren at ACSM and heard the same story. I haven't changed my routine yet, though. So we'll see. (laughs) But at at the skeletal level, right? Skeletal muscle level or periphery, there were benefits. But centrally, there were not. Right. Central nervous system. I would when we can get a topical creatine. And I can rub it in my head and go right to my brain. I'll go to 10 grams. But if I go to 10, 20 grams, I'm going to weigh 20 pounds more. So I'm out on that. <laughs> I literally put on 11 pounds with 10 grams. No, thank you, man. Oh, I'll stay man. stupid. Yeah. <laughs> well, yeah, 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 Tony's one of those strange characters that, you know, gains muscle mass very easily. So uh, he, he tries to stay away from the high dose creatine. Well, you know, somebody's got to take the bullet, Tony. (laughs) Hey, I always say this. It's nothing to be proud of, Mike. I'd rather look like Brad Pitt, you know, and and be built like a a boxer. But (laughs) that's the one one thing God gave me, the ability to induce hypertrophy very easily. Well, take a win with a win. Exactly. (laughs) Hey, hey Mike, we got a couple minutes left. Tell us about any new uh, upcoming projects you're doing that maybe you'll present next year at ISSN, ACSM, or or whichever. Yeah. 
So we've been heavily involved with a supplement called betaine or trimethylglycine. Oh, yeah. Okay. Um, we started this work back with the doctoral student named Brandon Willingham. Um, it, I guess it was Tim Zeigenfuss was giving a talk to my sports nutrition class and he mentioned betaine. And in his talk, he mentioned about something it could do with bringing water with it and osmolite, um, hydration, but every application that I had seen was more on the body calm muscle side of it. And my student Brandon was interested in heat and thermoreg. And so I called him, sent him a text message like, Hey, check this out. I wonder what it does for heat and thermoreg. Is there any literature? Turns out there was a paper on it that showed no result with taking betaine in the heat that was out of a very good lab. But I asked Brandon to look into it and he was curious. So he read and read and read all this animal research that, you know, they give betaine to animals in hot, humid environments to keep them alive longer in wow. feed pens. Whoa, I didn't know that. Yeah. So it was all over these feed lots. But guess what? They don't take a dose and stop. It's in their feed or it's in their water. Wow. So we looked at the literature, which was a one off dose. And I said, we got to load this stuff. I think we have to load it. And so we started a series of studies with loading betaine, and then we put them in our heat chamber and we're seeing what's happening. Um, the first paper of that got a little messed up because COVID hit and we mm -hmm. couldn't exercise anymore. So we sat people in a hot human environment. And then that paper basically didn't show much, but I don't think we stressed the body enough because they weren't doing anything. They were just sitting there. And so it's the it might be the combination of the exercise and the heat that this might work. Now we've only tested like six people so far, um, but we're starting to see some interesting things with core temperature staying wow. potentially lower. And if it works, then we'll start some more research, but the next study is in firefighters. So a new doctoral student, she's fabulous. Lily Renteria, she's going to be a superstar. She's taking this on and she's going to use this in an active live burn in firefighters to see wow. how all their water shifts and regulation of temperature uh, works. Wow, that's that's fast. Well, it's fascinating. One, two, in Florida, where they have races all year, especially South Florida, where it's super hot. Yeah. If this actually does what you think it might do, that would be huge. That would be yeah. absolutely huge. And, yeah. and what's the dosing? What's the dosing? 50 milligrams per kilogram is what we've used in the studies so far. Yeah. 50 milligrams per kilogram. So we got it sourced. We got some grants where, uh, um, we're really excited for, uh, that, that are going to host and let us do all this work. And if it works, I think we're up the, uh, in a good spot to have preliminary data for FEMA work or future DOD funding. Exactly. Tony, any final words for, uh, Dr. Ormsby? No, really just great stuff. Real interesting. I'm, I'm glad you were able to shine further light on this, Mike, because like I said, um, I've utilized your protein research and particularly the nighttime feeding uh, for a long time in class. And I think it, it, it's very valuable, not only in athletic performance, but like I said, it's got a major implication on weight management for the general population. People always hungry at night. Here's some good news. You can, yeah. you can have something to eat, eat some good yeah. protein. You know, That's exactly it. Yep. It just can't be apple pie. <laughs> yeah. You know, we still have to run that ice cream study I talked about. So <laughs> I'm, in, I'm coming up to Tallahassee for that study. <laughs> hey, Mike, uh, thank you so much for appearing on the Sports Science Dudes. It was a great conversation. Tony, thank you very much. And uh, I'll upload this podcast. Give me a couple of days. It'll be up. So thanks a lot. Uh, Enjoy thanks a lot. It, gentlemen. Thank you. Thanks, guys. Take care. All right. Bye-bye.